Hello and welcome again to BJGP Interviews. I'm Nada Khan and I'm one of the associate editors of the BJGP. Thanks for taking the time today to listen to this podcast. In today's episode, we speak to Professor Lucy Ziegler, who is the Professor of Palliative Care and Head of the St. Gemma's Academic Unit of Palliative Care at the University of Leeds. She's talking to us today about work that's been done as part of a PhD for her student Yusuf El Mokhalalati. We're going to discuss the paper that her and Yusuf have published in the BJGP titled What Characterizes Good Home-Based End-of-Life Care? An Analysis of Five-Year Data from a Nationwide Mortality Follow-Back Survey in England. So thanks, Lucy, for joining us today. Um, And just talk us through what do we know already about whether people do get good care at the end of life or not? Yeah, so we know that if you get specialist palliative care, then you're very likely to get high quality end of life care but the problem is that not everybody gets specialist palliative care and that's going to become an increasing problem as the population in need of palliative care grows so the need for palliative care is expected to um, increase exponentially over the next 40 years and the people who are in need of palliative care are going to have increasingly complex conditions partly because of multimorbidities and people living much longer. So it's a real challenge that can't be met by specialist palliative care alone. And new models of how we deliver palliative care need to be considered. And uh, obviously, a GP is perfectly placed to identify people with palliative care needs and support them. There was sufficient resource and time available to do so. So what we've been doing in this study is looking at what constitutes good quality end-of-life care for people that are living at home and whether it is achievable to deliver uh, what our findings suggest would help people achieve good quality end-of-life care is, is a different question. But I suppose we're striving to find out what what good looks like. Okay. And talk us through a bit what you and your team did here. So this was a secondary analysis of an annual survey of bereaved people. That's right. So the Voices survey, it's an annual survey of bereaved relatives, actually, or carers. And we had a data set of five years. So there was 63,000 decedents. And that was linked to ONS data, which then gave us some further demographic information. And we looked in that population to try and establish what the determinants of high quality care for people living at home were during the last three months of of life. And this is, as you said, quite a big analysis of over 60,000 responses to the survey. And as you mentioned, the majority of people don't get specialist palliative care at the end of life. And one of the things I found interesting was only 28% of the people who died in this, or when you spoke to the bereaved carers, received specialist palliative care. So that suggests that actually GPs and primary and community care were providing a good bulk of this end of life care in this study at least. Yeah, so almost everybody who dies a non-sudden death has got the potential to benefit from palliative care. But as you say, that doesn't need to be necessarily delivered by specialist palliative care services, which depends on the complexity of symptoms. But it isn't necessarily being delivered by GPs and people and community-based healthcare professionals because um, we see that 
in the last three months of life without specialist palliative care, the number of um, emergency hospital admissions goes up and the amount of time spent in hospital increases. So it's not a given that it, the palliative care needs are being met and sometimes the, those admissions occur around times of a crisis and poorly managed symptoms. So what the ideal situation would be, obviously, if everybody's needs were being met. So, as I said, this is a big analysis of over 60,000 responses, which is immense, really. But talk us through some of the main findings from the survey and what the carers were telling you about the care that their loved ones received at the end of life. Yeah, so the first thing to say, I think, is that this study is quite um, unusual in, in that we ask the, the relatives to, to rate their quality of end-of-life care from their own perspective. So normally we, thinking about quality of end-of-life care, we might use some quality markers that are um, known to be relevant at a population level. But this is, we asked in, in the survey, individual carers and relatives are asked to rate quality of life at a, a personal level. So that's data that is really valuable and a, a perspective that's really valuable. So over the five years of the survey, we, as we've said, we had a population of 63,500. Um, the majority of, of people in the study were over 75 years of age, half were female, and 38% lived in the most deprived areas. Uh, and interestingly, around 60% of the decedents died of non-cancer conditions and just under half were ill for more than a year before death, and around 57% died in hospital. So, as you've said, only 28.2% received specialist palliative care at home in the last three months of life. So our primary outcome, the thing we were most interested in, in exploring, was a quality of end-of-life care and what was associated with it. So good overall quality of end-of-life care, as perceived by relatives, uh, was associated with receiving good continuity of primary care. Now, we measured that um, by not by being able to see a GP of your choice. So that was a, an indicator of, of quality, um, continuity of care. Good quality end-of-life care was also associated with um, receiving palliative care support at home compared to those that did not. So those that received palliative care at home rated their quality of end-of-life care as better. And better overall quality of end-of-life care was, as perceived by relatives, was also associated with being older, being female and having a, a spouse. Better overall quality of end-of-life care um, was associated with being older, female, having a spouse, and living in the least socioeconomically deprived areas. Also being of white ethnicity and dying from cancer, as opposed to any non-cancer diagnosis, and dying outside of hospital, in particular at home, was associated with better quality of end-of-life care. And do you think that's because people with cancer have maybe a more understood trajectory? Why do you think that it was people with cancer? I mean, I can understand to some extent the findings around socioeconomic status. I think if people have got um, a cancer diagnosis, they're, they're sort of hooked into a existing healthcare system with 
we you know protocolized care quite often and regular review and follow-up and quite a lot of increasing numbers of, of people with advanced cancer are still on active treatment whether that is chemotherapy radiotherapy um, with the intention of managing symptoms or the disease so there's still quite a lot of involvement of oncology services alongside um, the people with advanced advanced cancer so there's probably they're probably more likely to receive palliative care and get that option perhaps around the time cancer cancer treatment stops and perhaps a more understood trajectory although I appreciate that not everyone has the same disease journey as well yeah yeah I think that's true there's there is certainly for some cancers a not curative at diagnosis aren't they so for those patients um potentially could be on a palliative care pathway from diagnosis for others at the point of recurrent disease or disease progression it it becomes clear that palliative care is going to be beneficial I think well, I think I think it's interesting because we've published quite a few papers in the BJGP showing the importance of continuity of care for a range of different mm. outcomes. So amongst people who aren't dying, good continuity of care reduces hospital admissions, is associated with less episodes of delirium, for instance, in the elderly. Yeah. And this study really is in parallel with that and found that perceptions of good end-of-life care was associated with good continuity so that's interesting to see that as well. And I wonder if it's just that, you know, the families value having one point of contact as well. I think I think so. And I think they are some qualitative work associated with this um, has sort of informed, uh, has given us a little bit more insight. And one of the challenges is that people don't like that in this position approaching the end of life don't have to keep don't want to keep repeating to different healthcare professionals their their situation and their symptoms and their problems and even at times you know repeating it to um you know administrative staff as well which is sort of understandable as you're trying to triage um appointment but I think it can be really challenging for patients to have to go through that and a real barrier to accessing that. And in terms of that continuity issue, I wondered about the role of out-of-hours general practice care as well, because sometimes families or people at the end of life need care when their GP surgery is closed. And following on from that point about not having to repeat the story over and over again, in this paper, you highlight the importance of good communication, information sharing for people at the end of life. So I don't know if you want to comment on that as well. Yeah, so I think it's I think it's key. And even as we as we learn more about how to keep people at home uh, in the place where they want to be um, and have their symptoms effectively managed it's very complex and it involves a complex system and a complex communication sort of uh, system Uh, paramedics might need to be able to access information um, and make decision help you know be part of the decision making process about staying at home and you know need need the skills and um, confidence and confidence to have those conversations and, and see it as part of their role. So the communication, there's a there's communication 
uh, I guess, interprofessional communication and things need to be joined up. And um, if a patient lands in, a, in an emergency department, it needs to be apparent very quickly to that team that they, this patient's approached the end of their, their life, doesn't it? But as well, before they get there, the, the paramedics, I guess, need to be aware as well that the patient's uh, preference uh, is to remain at home if possible. This reminds me of, uh, I did some work at St. Christopher's uh, in Sydenham, one of the hospices in South London. And one memory, a strong memory I have is speaking to one of the palliative care nurses who, when the paramedics arrived to take her patient to hospital, she ran down the road and stood physically in front of the ambulance and said, you're, you're not taking this gentleman into hospital. He doesn't want to die there. He wants to die yeah. at home. But also acknowledging that some families and some people don't know what it means to die at home. And sometimes there are situations where people might feel uncomfortable with bodily fluids or things like that at the end of life and things m might change as well so interesting absolutely things. and i think that's the i think the one of the outcomes is um that of a indication of a good quality end of life care is being able to express a preference for where you want to die because that's a indicate indication that the conversation's taken place and we've moved away from uh dying at a place of preference um because actually that doesn't necessarily mean <laughs> that it, it was a good quality because you know things change and things should be allowed to change and you can change your mind about where you want to be um and actually dying in the place that you wrote on your advanced care plan you wanted to be is not necessarily an indicator of, of good quality, but it's more likely that having had the conversation is an indication mm. that planning's taken place. Okay. And any other key findings that you want to highlight from the survey findings? I think one of the other things was that we found that compared to people who died in, in hospital, people who died in care homes were much less likely to be involved in decision-making. And that could be related to um, perceived capacity to be part of decision-making. Um, and I think we are starting to look more and more about how we can involve people and their families in who are based in care homes in decision making and planning and and not just sort of um particularly post-covid and and you know it's really critical to address that potential inequality and make sure people in care homes have the option of being part of the decision making about their end of life yeah and as you said because this was a survey of family members as well so mm -hmm. their perception as well about how they're loved one was cared for in that care home and how yeah. the decisions were made yeah. yeah yeah okay and I wonder if you could just talk about what the key implications here are for primary care what what can we be doing as GPs or people working in the community to enhance care for people at the end of life so we pulled we really um focused on the newest what we thought was the most novel finding which was that the importance of was around the importance of a continuity of primary care um, on the positive outcomes at end of life. 
and the key role of the general practitioner in supporting the patient and their family at the end of life. But I think we recognise the challenges in 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 this and how primary care might respond um, given the pressure uh, and the pressure to see patients. You've got pressure to see patients who are who are contacting you, you as as primary care um, clinician and. These patients with palliative care needs are probably not the patients that are going to be contacting you, but are patients that you're going to have to identify and um, approach them quite often to um, explore ways in which you can support and manage their symptoms. So it's a slightly different uh, approach and a lot there's various electronic systems in use at the moment to try and identify patients with palliative care needs or even patients with who are likely to die within the next 12 months. But then there's quite a lot of uh, work with, with the patient to do. <laughs> that's not, you know, that system identifies a, a population that doesn't identify need. So then it's a sort of complex uh, process, a time-consuming process to identify what those needs are and how they can be best met. So we're not underestimating the um, challenge of delivering. Mm, and I think what this paper has found, it's probably reflecting what some of us thought might have been the case, but it's good to hear the voices of the actual people who, who experienced that. So that's really helpful. So yeah, thank you very much for joining us. It's been really interesting to hear about it. Thank you, Nada. And thank you all very much for joining us today. The original research article can be found on bjgp.org and the show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Thanks again for listening. Bye.